Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. We watch this show as a family sometimes called Alone. Maybe some of you have seen that show. Maybe you like that show. We're fans of that show. Basically, if you don't know what that show is about, they drop 10 people off at different places around some remote lake in the middle of nowhere. And, and the goal is to see who can outlast everybody else. And, and the, the, the trick here is that the, the contestants all film themselves. There's no camera crew following them around, so they're legitimately alone, each one of them. They never come into contact with the other people that they're competing against. And, and the trick is they don't know how many people are still out there trying to outlast the others. They could be, you know, there could still be nine people out there after 40 days. Or there could be one. And they just don't know. And so it messes with their, their minds. And they can only bring a few things. So, I mean, it's really gut-wrenching to watch these guys they're, and gals. They're out there just starving themselves, basically, at some, eventually at some point in the game. And you get to the point eventually where there's just two people. They don't know if there's still five people or six people, but there's just two. And we're watching, and we all know, we have a wider perspective of what's happening. And we can see, and so you're sitting there rooting for one guy, or you're rooting for the other, and you're like, man, if you could only see, if you could only see the state that guy's in, you know, you would, it would pull you through. If you could only see how far you've come and how close you are, to winning, if you only had a wider perspective, you would be so encouraged that it might actually help you win, help you get through. It's because it's amazing sometimes how encouraging a wider perspective can be. And I think we'll see this today as well in our text. First, some review. Last week we heard Jesus tell his disciples in verse 27 that a day would come. When he, the Son of Man, would come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And I believe he said this most specifically in reference to what each person had done with him. The act or deed referred to there in verse 27 is a singular act. And so it's a summary reference to whether they chose to follow him or not while they were still alive. And so, had a person chosen to deny himself, to, to not lean on his own understanding, and instead follow Jesus by grace through faith? If so, then one day, the Christ would return, coming in the clouds with great power and glory, as we're told in Mark chapter 13, sending out the angels and gathering that person up as one of his elect. On that great day of Christ's return, each one who had chosen to follow him in life would be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And Christ would repay that person first by giving him a changed body, his mortal body now clothed in immortality. We shall be changed in a moment. We shall all be changed, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. In the twinkling of an eye. This is what the Apostle John calls the first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20, saying, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. This is the ultimate end of what Jesus promised his disciples. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But what about the person who chose to save his own life? If the Son of Man, if, if the Christ would repay each person according to what they had done with Jesus, what they had done with Him, whether they'd chosen to follow Him or not while they were alive, what about the person who'd refuse to deny his own life and take the life offered to him instead by Jesus? Well, then on the day Christ returned in great glory, that person would be repaid first by missing out on a thousand years of reigning with Christ in this world and only later be raised up for judgment and the second death of hell. This is the ultimate end about which Jesus had warned. 
Whoever would save his life will lose it. Will lose it. But then Jesus says something that has confused a lot of people, to put it mildly. In verse 28, he then says this. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And here's the problem. Here's why this has been confusing to so many people. People have automatically assumed that So, since it's clear that in verse 27, Jesus is talking about his second coming, people have automatically assumed that verse 28 is also talking about his second coming. And so it's been thought by some that what Jesus is actually saying here is that there will be those among his disciples who will still be alive when he comes back again with his angels to repay the just and the unjust for what they have done. And so the result of this confusion is that some critics of the Bible have pointed to this verse as proof that either Jesus was wrong or that the Bible has a mistake in it, or both. Why? Well, because the disciples are long gone. And where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? You find yourself ever asking that question? Where is Jesus? Maybe like the disciples your expectations of what it would mean to follow him have been forced to readjust in recent years. Maybe the changes you hoped for in your life aren't happening fast enough. Maybe, maybe your plans for the way Jesus was supposed to fit into your life have not worked out like you thought they would. You know, it's, it's possible you thought Jesus was going to Come in and handle all the problems of your fixer-upper life like a kind father-in-law. You know, he's going to come in and tighten the leaky pipe there and mend the hole in the drywall over there, but otherwise leave you and your life alone. Maybe you thought that's how it was going to work out. It's, it's possible you thought he was there to be free laborer in your own kingdom. But instead, it turns out, he actually expects you to use your life to serve him. It turns out he actually expects you to put him first and help him build his kingdom. It turns out he expects you to obey him and, and be willing to suffer for him in the process. And that realization has been hard for you to adjust to, just as it was for the disciples. Right? Because a Christ who would go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, that's not what they thought they were signing up for. Taking up a cross that promised suffering and possibly death was not what they had expected when they chose to follow Jesus. And knowing this, Jesus, in his gracious kindness, had encouraged them. That glory and honor and and reward that you pictured when you said yes to following me is coming, Jesus said to them. Just as my suffering and death is not the last word in my story, neither will it be the last word in yours. I will be raised on the third day, and on on one great day, another great day, your bodies as well will be raised up and changed. And on that day, I will return in glory. The one who was judged by men, now the judge of all men, and I will repay. I will repay. But for you, for you who follow me, I will make all the sad things of your life now come untrue. Not just as as a compensation for what you lost. No, it will be far, far more. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Truly, Jesus says. The word in Greek there is amen. You might recognize that word. As I heard someone say, when preachers preach, they like to add amen to the end of a really good line, like an exclamation point, and they hope the congregation will repeat it to show they agree. Amen? Amen. Amen. But Jesus doesn't wait for anyone to agree with him. 
You'll notice that he begins with amen quite a few times when he talks to signal that his words are true whether anyone agrees with him or not. Jesus puts the exclamation point at the beginning of his sentences. It's a word that can also be translated assuredly. Assuredly. When Jesus said assuredly, writes R.C. Sproul, he was emphasizing to his disciples that the statement he was about to utter was completely trustworthy. They could take it to the bank. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This was a promise. Jesus is making a promise. And it's clear to me that Jesus gives this promise in order to further encourage his disciples. And so one might ask, where is he? Where is Jesus? Because while a disciple might ask this question with confusion and longing, others are asking it today with a sneer, pointing to verse 28 to suggest that we've believed in a lie, that Jesus has broken his promise. As Peter predicted would happen, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And, and don't they have a little bit of a point? Where is he? 2,000 years have passed and the disciples are all gone, but still it doesn't seem Jesus has come in his kingdom. So how do we respond to verse 28 or, or explain Christ's words to his disciples here? Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, I'm just going to ask you to hold that uncomfortable question for now and we'll come back to it. In the meantime, look with me now at the very next verse, and as you do, ignore the uninspired chapter break that makes it seem like the words of Jesus we've just heard should be separated from what happens next, because I don't think they should be. Next verse, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, you you should take note of that very specific time stamp given here by Matthew. After six days, he says. These, those kinds of precise time links aren't common in the Gospels, usually until the end of the Gospels, where the writers then tend to pay attention to time, important time things around the passion of the Christ, the passion narratives at the end. And so, so I think this is another clue that this next scene... This next story we're about to look at is meant to be taken together with Jesus' words in verse 28. He's just promised something special will happen for some of the disciples. And immediately now, Matthew takes great pains to note that only six days later, Jesus handpicks some of them, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and leads them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, as you'd expect, there are many theories about which mountain this actually was. Some believe it was Mount Hermon because that's, you know, the highest and closest mountain to where many of the events of chapter 16 have taken place up to this point. But that's to the north of them, and it seems to me as though Jesus has already set them on the road heading south towards Jerusalem. So it could be Mount Hermon, but maybe it's somewhere else. Other Guesses include Mount Tabor and Mount Moron. Mount Tabor is six miles from Nazareth and 12 miles from the Sea of Galilee. And so, you know, that would fall reasonably into the line of travel southward, kind of in a meandering way, toward Jerusalem. Well, the, and the only problem there is that there was already a fortress on the top of that mountain in Jesus' day. And that just seems a little weird. The text seems to indicate that solitude away from prying eyes was important in this moment. Um, so Mount Moron seems to be a better candidate, but the, the truth is we just don't know. Uh, it's eight miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee and the highest peak within Pal the, the Palestine, Palestine proper at 3,960 feet. Just for reference, um, Mule Mountain right out here by the Swayze Recreation Trails is 2,323 feet. And so one day Jesus says to these three men, come with me. 
Come with me. And they start heading up a mountain. And they must have been excited. I, I think they must have been excited and picked by Jesus, you know? Feels good to be picked first. And, and also in the Bible, important things happen on mountains, right? I mean, arks come to rest on mountains. Sons are taken to be sacrificed on mountains. Commandments and covenants are given on mountains. Curses and blessings are pronounced on mountains. False prophets are challenged and killed on mountains. Altars and temples are built on mountains. Sermons and sustenance are given on mountains. And now, like Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu following Moses up Mount Sinai, they're also climbing up a high mountain by themselves with Jesus. I wonder what went through their minds as they climbed. Edersheim believes the sun was setting as they went. A delicious cool hung in the air, he writes, and overhead shone out in the blue summer sky, one by one, the stars in eastern brilliance. Whatever their expectations as they climb, it's, it's possible that they were disappointed upon arrival at the summit because it turns out, according to Luke's gospel, that Jesus went up there to pray. He went up there to pray. And so the disciples do what it seems they frequently do when Jesus prays. What do they do? They fall asleep. Doesn't make you feel so bad, does it? Luke says, they were heavy with sleep. But they don't sleep for long. Look with me now at verse 2. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. My argument this morning is going to be that this event on the mountain known as the Transfiguration is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise back in verse 28. I know there's lots of opinions about this, but this is going to be my argument. My argument is that Matthew puts this story immediately after that promise of Jesus for a reason. That Jesus knows that the wind has gone out of their sails, that, that he knows the disciples are struggling to adjust to new expectations about Jesus and about following him, that, and, and he knows that they're struggling to trust him with what seems like a frightening future. And so Jesus arranges for these three to see something that gives them an off-ramp from that mental loop of dismay that they're stuck in. Jesus arranges for these three to be encouraged in a very special way, to get a different perspective. And maybe you're wondering, why these three? You know, what? Seems, a little, seems a little favoritism. Is that a good thing, Jesus? You know, why these three? Well, we can only guess about the reasons. Maybe, maybe Peter, because out of the twelve, he'll be the one to carry the lion's share of the leadership burden in the early years to come, as we've seen. Maybe John, because of, out of all the twelve, he ends up living the longest and will be the one entrusted to pass on this encouragement to the next generation of church leaders. Maybe James, because of all the twelve, he'll be the first to face death for his Savior. Maybe for these three, Jesus knows the encouragement of this mountaintop vantage point, this mountaintop perspective, this mountaintop experience will be especially important and become the extra courage they need to face what they will face. And so Jesus prays on that mountain while his disciples sleep. And I think he was praying for them. I think he was asking his father at that moment to encourage them in a special way by revealing to them His glory. Just as God had revealed His glory to Moses by making all His goodness pass before Him. I think He was praying just as Elisha prayed for His servant that their eyes might also be opened to behold that far more are with us than are with them. But how does this event on the mountain fulfill the promise of verse 28? Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Well, okay, it's true that at the moment Jesus made that, that promise, 
both the Son of Man and His kingdom, or His reign, had already come in one sense in their midst. Right? Since King Jesus is here on earth in this story, the reign of God is also already being manifested on earth in everything He does. Wherever He goes, Jesus is perfectly living out the will of God in His life. So that in Jesus, God's kingdom has already begun to come in a limited way on earth as it is in heaven. But aside from the glory and the power of God on display in the miracles that Jesus does, you need to remember that the rest of the time, He just looks like one of us. Right? You need to remember that the rest of the time, He's, just, he's an average Joe. He looks like an, He's the guy next door. Think about it. Would the Pharisees really stand and argue with Jesus if his face shone like the sun? Do you really think the crowds would have lost interest and and wandered off grumbling if there had been some constant, unmistakable glow of majesty radiating from him? I don't think so. But that wasn't the way things were with with Jesus. He wasn't radiating light all the time. As we're told in Isaiah 52.3, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. In other words, you wouldn't have been able to pick Jesus out of a crowd as something or someone special just by looks alone. It's kind of weird to think about, huh? But what if that suddenly changed? Jesus says, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He's saying that some of those among the twelve will not die before seeing with their own eyes the event He describes as the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So the obvious question is, what other kind of coming in His kingdom could Jesus be talking about? What, What else, other than His second coming, could fit the criteria of this promised event. John MacArthur points out that while the word here in Greek can rightly be translated kingdom or reign or rule, it can also be translated kingship or regal splendor or royal majesty. What this means, I believe, is that the emphasis in verse 28 is actually on the Son of Man coming in His royal majesty. In other words, I think that what Jesus does in verse 28 is to shift from speaking about His second coming in the glory of His Father to repay His followers and His foes to speaking now about a different kind of coming with glory. I think in verse 28, He's now speaking about a unique event, what what some have even called a preview of His second coming, a coming of the Son of Man in His royal majesty, where suddenly the humdrum camouflage veil that has always hidden him in a crowd is suddenly stripped away. As A.B. Simpson put it, the veil of his humiliation for a moment is wholly cast aside so that he's revealed in the true nature of his majesty and power before these select men. And you know, that's exactly how Peter seems to describe this event years later. The most important rule of biblical interpretation, good one to remember, is that the Bible is always the best interpreter of itself. Which means that if the Bible itself speaks to explain a text, that explanation gets precedence over any wild theories you or I may have about what any particular verse means. And so when you come to a verse you don't understand, you need to ask yourself first if there's anything in the immediate context that helps you understand it better. And if you can't find anything there, the next thing you need to do is see if there are any clues in the wider context of the Bible that speak to that verse and help you understand it better. And having done that with verse 28, what we find is that the clearest help for understanding Jesus' words here seem to come to us both from this very next story we're reading about now, the transfiguration, and then later from some of the people who were actually there. 
from Peter himself and also from John. And this is what Peter says years later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, about the events that took place on that mountain. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. John, who was also there on that mountain, adds this in his gospel, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, the big idea or proposition of our text today is that God reveals Christ's glory to encourage His people. He does this to encourage His people. And the first way He does this in our text is by putting the glory of Christ's countenance on display. It's a display of His nature shining through His clothes and His face that reveals and confirms His royal majesty. The glory of Christ's countenance confirms His royal majesty. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. This word translated transfiguration means to be transformed. Right? We, we get the English word metamorphosis from the Greek word that's used here. And, and while what's described by Matthew seems to only kind of be an outward transformation of Jesus' appearance... The sense of the word in Greek is that such an outward change is actually the manifestation of a change in the expression of an inner nature or essence of a thing. Something deeper has changed first. And so, yes, Jesus' face shines like the sun. It's the same brightness that blinds Saul on the road to Damascus. It's the same brightness that will one day light up the new Jerusalem and make the sun obsolete. And yes, Jesus' clothes suddenly become white as light, radiant, as Mark's gospel describes them, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. I think that's funny. But just like the dullness of a light bulb that shut off, just like the dullness of a light bulb's outward appearance changes to an appearance of brilliance, because of a sudden internal change that comes with the flip of a switch, so it is with Jesus. So it is with Jesus here on this mountain. In other words, this transformation isn't just a surface-level event. Right? It's not like God just dipped Jesus' clothes and skin in luminescent paint, and so He suddenly glowed in the dark. This isn't just an outward thing. And neither is it like another time in the Bible when another man's face shone with the reflected glory of divine light as the face of Moses did because he'd spoken with God. No, what we need to understand here is that Jesus isn't reflecting another person's glory. The source of this light is the being of Christ himself whom the author of Hebrews describes as the brightness of God's glory. It's as if God the Father flips a switch And the dullness of Jesus' human nature is instantly lit up from within by the reality of His own royal majesty shining through. Do you think seeing Jesus this way made an impression on these men? Do you think seeing Jesus this way reinforced maybe their fumbling faith and, and encouraged them to believe they weren't following Him in vain? Do you think seeing Jesus this way filled them with hope and with courage in that moment and in the years to come. I think it did. Amen. Amen. I think it did. This was the king they were following, right? And this was the king who would one day return and reward them when he came in the clouds and in glory with his angels. This was the king. But this isn't the only glory God reveals to encourage them. 
God reveals Christ's glory to encourage his people. And now, the second way he does this in our text is by putting the glory of Christ's companions on display. His companions. And this time it's a display that reveals and confirms Christ's rightful authority. His rightful authority. The glory of Christ's company confirms his rightful authority. Look now at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. I want to point out that Luke's account says these men were seeing all this just moments after waking up from a deep sleep. And I think he says this because otherwise we might be tempted to think they were dreaming. Right? But they're awake. They're wide awake. Now, their rabbi, their, their teacher who dresses like them and talks like them and looks just like them, he suddenly exploded into a figure of dazzling light right before their eyes. He looks like a heavenly being. And now on top of that, he's being joined by two heroic titans from Israel's history for a little fireside chat like that's something that's totally normal. And I bet the disciples were tempted to think they were dreaming this all up too. But why would this be so incredible to them? Well, because aside from this proving the conscious existence of God's people following their deaths, it wasn't just any of God's people who stood there talking with Jesus, was it? These are especially important people. One of them was Moses, the great liberator and lawgiver of Israel. I had a pastor who always used to trick people. He had a trick question about Moses. He'd say, did Moses ever set foot in the promised land? And everybody would say, no. And then he'd just smile and he'd point to this text. Because here's Moses. He snuck in the back door. Here he is standing on a mountain in the land of promise. That guy. And who else is there with him? There also is Elijah, a prophet so great, he never died, but was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Elijah, the one promised to return in conjunction with the coming of Israel's promised Messiah. Friends, this was exalted company Jesus was keeping. Why do you think that would matter to the discouraged disciples? Recently, one of my son's uh, was telling me all about his, his teacher who was teaching them to play basketball in PE. Uh, he's so good, he was saying. <laughs> he showed me to do this, and he showed me how to do that, and he was clearly very impressed with his PE teacher. And I, you know, selfishly, I really wanted to explain to him uh, that I'd been playing organized basketball since junior high. <laughs> I really wanted to explain to him that that I was actually pretty good in high school. I, I really wanted to explain to him that I'd actually played college ball for three years at, at Simpson, and I, I'd held my own, you know? But I didn't think he'd really believe any of that, so I didn't end up saying anything. But now imagine if we went to shoot around at, at Grant over there. Imagine we went over there to shoot around at school, and this PE teacher he idolizes showed up and, you know, recognized me from my college days playing ball. What, imagine if he then came over and started talking to me and, you know, asking me for advice about basketball right in front of my son. What do you think that would do for me in the eyes of my son? Right. I think that would obviously skyrocket my authority and credibility in his eyes. And that's exactly what these two great men do for Jesus in the eyes of his disciples Notice Matthew doesn't say Jesus was talking with them. No, they were talking with Jesus. They were talking with Him. The disciples see them playing the role of supporting cast to Jesus. So that taken together in this scene, these two key figures of Israel's history represent a way of signaling that all the law and the prophets point to Jesus and to His ministry that all of the Old Testament revelation finds its fulfillment in Him. In Him. Well, in what, in what way most specifically does all the Old Testament find its fulfillment in Jesus? Well, we don't know what else they might have talked about, but we do know from Luke's account that they spoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish where? 
at Jerusalem. What's at Jerusalem? The cross. That word for departure in Luke's text is a familiar Greek word, exodus. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment most specifically in Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, his exodus. In the words of one commentator, these events of departure they were talking about were not just a way of leaving this world, but of redeeming his people, just as the exodus from Egypt led by Moses was Israel's liberation from slavery. Just shy of a week ago, Peter tried to disrupt the plan of Jesus to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And now, together with James and John, he watches as the representatives of the law and the prophets give all their support to Jesus and this plan as the thing that will accomplish Israel's liberation. Do you think seeing Jesus talking with these men in this way made an impression on the disciples? Do you think seeing Jesus talking with these men in this way reinforced their fumbling faith and encouraged them to believe they weren't following him in vain? Do you think seeing Jesus talking with these men in this way filled them with hope and with courage in that moment and in the years to come? I think it did. I think it did. This was the king they were following. And this was the king who would one day return and reward them when he came in the clouds and in glory with his angels. Luke's account tells us that after talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah were were parting from him when Peter, being Peter, once again used his mouth to ruin the moment by saying something kind of weird. Look at verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Poor Peter. Maybe Peter just didn't want the moment to end, right? Maybe he saw them leaving, and he, and he, just, he just wanted the wonder of it all to last as long as possible. Kind of like when your kids won't go to bed on the last night of vacation because they're trying to squeeze every last bit of goodness out of the time they have left. Mark's gospel helpfully adds this for us here, that Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> I, think, I think Mark's trying to cover for Peter a little here. He's like, hey man, don't judge him for his weirdness. They were all a mess. Others have seen it as, as the last dying expression of his belief that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were all on the same level. And so they all should get the same kind of housing. Whatever the case, God puts an end to all wandering thoughts with a final clarifying statement. Look now at verse 5. Peter was still speaking. God interrupts Peter. He doesn't have a problem with that. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. (laughs) Here they are, right, talking about who gets what tent, when suddenly a bright cloud rushes in above them. Maybe you've been to the Bay Area and you've seen the way the marine layer rolls in like a wave every evening. I imagine this bright cloud sweeping in like that, only much, much faster. Except this isn't just any cloud. No, this, this is the same great tempest that shrouded Sinai with thunder and napalm at the giving of the commandments. This is the same great twisting pillar that led the nation in the wilderness by day and the fire-nado that led them by night. This is that same great Shekinah cloud that so filled Solomon's temple with the weight of God's glory that the priests couldn't stand to minister there. And neither now can these men stand. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, what did they do? They fell on their faces and were terrified. God reveals Christ's glory to encourage his people. We saw this first in our text when he put Christ's countenance on display, confirming his royal majesty. We saw this next in our text when he put Christ's companions on display, confirming Christ's royal 
authority. And now the last way God reveals Christ's glory is by putting the glory of his confessor on display. And it's a display this time that reveals and confirms Christ's real divinity. His real divinity. The glory of Christ's confessor confirms Christ's real divinity. What do I mean by that? What do I mean? What I mean is that this is now God the Father making the same confession, making the same declaration about the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth that Peter did. He's confirming in person with his own voice what he already revealed to Peter through the Holy Spirit and prompted him to confess publicly just a few days earlier. He is taking the stand and acting as the second witness in a trial, testifying as the God who cannot lie, bearing witness to the truth about Jesus, not just that He's the Christ, but that He is God. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We've heard these words before, haven't we? It's the same confession word for word that the Father spoke audibly at Jesus' baptism back in chapter 3. They're the same words He spoke then to kick off Jesus' public ministry and to bear Him up during the wilderness struggle that was ahead of Him. And now that declaration comes again. Near the end of His public ministry and, and perhaps once again to bear Him and His disciples up in the wilderness struggle that's soon to come. But how do those words signal that Jesus is God? So what we can't miss in our familiarity with these words is the cultural and theological significance to the Jews of God calling Jesus his son. Because I assure you the disciples wouldn't have missed it. They did not miss it. No Jew would have missed the significance of what God says here. And all you have to do to understand why it's so significant is to remember the interaction of Jesus with the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5. Really quick, there Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And John tells us in the very next verse, this, what Jesus just said, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, listen to this, making himself equal with God. They knew what that meant. See, the Jews understood that to call someone father was to claim sonship. And to be a son was to share in the same nature as the father. So for Jesus to call God his father in that way was a clear way of him saying he was equal in nature to God. And this is exactly what the rest of Hebrews 1.3 also confirms. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, we already saw that, and the exact representation of His being. He is, as the Nicene Creed puts it, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And now it's God Himself who confirms this. Yep, God says, He's my Son. He's my son. You know, it's one thing for the disciples to hear Jesus, who, you know, looks and sounds just like them. It's one thing for them to hear him call God his father. But I imagine it was something altogether different to have the voice of Yahweh roll down like peals of thunder from the pillar of cloud and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Do you think... Hearing Jesus confessed and confirmed in this way made an impression on the disciples? Do you think hearing Jesus confessed and confirmed in this way reinforced their fumbling faith and encouraged them to believe they weren't following Him in vain? Do you think hearing Jesus confessed and confirmed in this way filled them with hope and with courage in, the, in that moment and in years to come? I think it did. This was the King they were following. And this was the king who would one day return and reward them when he came in the clouds and in glory with his angels. But apparently, 
Hearing Jesus confessed and confirmed in this way also understandably filled them with holy fear. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The next two words are wonderful. You've all heard sermons about the many but God verses in the Bible. Those many verses where those two words spell out the true hope and security of all God's people. But God remembered, Jonah, remembered Noah, Genesis 8.1. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, Genesis 50, verse 20. My flesh and my, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, Psalm 73.26. And now we read this in verse 7 and 8 about Jesus. Who is God? But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. No one but Jesus only. The lawgiver and the prophet are gone. The bright cloud and the voice, gone. Perhaps even the night was now gone. The light of dawn rising and spreading its glow in the east, so that as the disciples finally risk a glance around them again, all they see is the familiar, approachable, encouraging face of Jesus. Rise, he says to them with a smile and a touch, and have no fear. You know, we said that for these three men, the encouragement of this mountaintop experience will be their courage going forward. But the truth is, the encouragement here isn't just for them. It's not just for them. In obedience to Jesus, they do, they do wait to share this, but they eventually share what they've seen with the rest of the disciples after his resurrection. And then they preach and they, they write about this too for, for the encouragement of every believer, including us. Because we need to know that just as Jesus prayed on that mountain for his disciples while they slept, so he is praying for us too. Even today, as you slump in the weariness of your discouragement. Even this morning, as you hear these words through a fog of despair. Even now, Jesus prays for you. Because he knows that just like these three men, you need and are going to need special encouragement for what lies ahead too. And so, regarding those who are disciples, we read this promise in Hebrews 7.25 that he always lives to make intercession for them. For you. And God the Father always hears the prayers of His Son for you. And He answers them. He agrees to encourage you by revealing Christ's glory. And He's done it. He's done it. We too have seen His glory. And you might wonder how. How, how have we seen His glory? We weren't the eyewitnesses like, you know, Peter and James and John. No, but Peter tells us that we have a more sure witness to Christ's glory than even something we've seen with our own eyes. Yes, he says, we ourselves, talking about himself and John, we, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. But then he says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. What is he saying? He's saying we may not have an eyewitness experience of Christ's glory like he did, but what do we have? What we have is his glory revealed to us in the rest of the story. They didn't know what was happening next. They didn't know all that would play out. We have the revealed story, God's glory in the rest of the story, laid out, preserved, and passed on to us in the Scriptures, written down by the prophets and apostles as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, he's saying, guys, memories fade. Memories fade. He's saying, our minds will fail us. He's saying, as wonderful as that experience was for me, there may come a time when I can't recall the details anymore with the same clarity. But the prophetic word of Scripture is different, he's saying. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. He writes elsewhere, quoting Isaiah, The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news 
that was preached to you. The more sure word we have, says Peter, is the inspired word of God. The more sure word we have is the radiance of His glory, the testimony of the law and the prophets, and the confession of the Father about His Son pronounced over His death on the cross, over His burial in a tomb, and His resurrection from death to life. The more sure word we have is His ascension to His heavenly throne, His sending of the Holy Spirit, and the triumphant explosion of the church growing from a band of twittering, terrified men to a great company of saints that stretched across the breadth of the known world in the lifetimes of many of these twelve. And we, we too, in that case, have seen the glory of Christ coming in His kingdom. And today we still see His kingdom coming in growing glory. The professions of faith, the baptisms that we're going to have today, the lives that we see slowly change through steady growth, as part of a church body, these are all the work of the Father in response to the prayers of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, all meant to be God's gracious encouragement to you who are Christ's people. And the glory of Christ's return is brighter now than it's ever been. It's closer now than it's ever been in world history. Look for it, Christian, until you see Christ only. Twice, Matthew says in the text, behold. Twice, he says, look. Look for the light of Christ's return in glory, shining through the dull plotting of your day, previewed previewed faithfully in the pages of his sure and abiding word. Look for the light of Christ's return in glory, shining through the disciples down through the ages previewed in a hundred million transfigurations, the lives of normal people made radiant by God's liberating grace. Look for it, Christian, and be encouraged until the day you see Jesus only for amen. He is coming. He is coming. He who wept above the grave, he who stilled the raging wave, meek to suffer, strong to save, he shall come in glory. He whose sorrow's pathway trod, he that ever good bestowed, son of man and son of God, he shall come in glory. He who bled with scourging sore, thorns and scarlet meekly wore, he who every sorrow bore, he shall come in glory. Monarch of the smitten cheek, scorn of Jew and scorn of Greek, priest and king divinely meek, he shall come in glory. He who died set us free. He who lives and loves even me. He who comes, whom I shall see. Jesus only, only he, he shall come and glory.